I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Sacrifice your footing for a killing stroke. What's conducting the electricity? Our bodies, Mr. Angiora, quite capable of conducting and indeed producing energy. I apologize. There simply is too much magic. The good cop, bad cop routine. Not exactly. Hi, this is Mark Kermode. Thanks for downloading this Kermode on Film podcast. This, astonishingly, is the third part of a conversation that uh, Jack Howard and I started two podcasts ago. We thought was going to be one podcast. We came across the idea of because Chris Nolan has now made 10 movies and there is a new one, Tenet, that will be in cinemas at some point. It was meant to be July, then it was pushed back to August. And we said, look, let's do a rundown of the order of the uh, Christopher Nolan movies. We'll do a top 10 each. And so we started doing it and we did from number 10 to number five. And that took like 35 minutes. So we said, okay, let's break this into two podcasts. And the second podcast we did from number five to number three, and that took 45 minutes. (laughs) So we decided to break it again I said very much like uh, Peter Jackson and The Hobbit and uh, turn it into, it was, always, it was always intended to be a trilogy. Jack, it was always intended to be a trilogy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. From the start, it was intended to be a trilogy. Yeah, we knew from the beginning it was going to be a trilogy. And uh, just like to say in advance that we're all very aware of the fact that um, I am famous for saying um, that, you, you know, brevity is, uh, is a great thing and very few films would not benefit from losing a third of their running time. So I appreciate the irony of us now drifting into the warm waters of part three of this uh, podcast, but uh, thank you. It's so bloated. Much. We, it we, is, we know it's bloated, but, but we like know. the sound of our own voices. Yeah. And also we just, we couldn't hurry through them. There's too much to talk about. So anyway, yes, this, we promise we will get to number one on this. Uh, thank you so much for, for, for listening. Uh, please go over and visit our Patreon page, which has videos. We're shooting this on video as well. So you can see Jack in his very tidy bedroom and me in my very cluttered office as we uh, do our, uh, our, our top two. Let's, Jack, just for the... Um, incidentally, if you haven't heard either of the two previous podcasts, just go back to the you know, Kermit on Film homepage and you, you can find both of them. Please do give them a listen. But just to, to run down where we are so far, this was what our top 10 looked like so far. At number 10, I had Following. I had The Dark Knight Rises. Number nine, I had Insomnia. I had Interstellar. Number eight, I had Interstellar. Number eight, I had following. And at number seven, and this is where things started to get a little bit sticky, I went for Dunkirk. Then I went for Insomnia. This is where it gets sticky though, Mark. This is really where I start to lose faith. At number six, The Dark Knight for me. (laughs) Jack. Number six, I had Batman Begins. Okay, fine. So at number five, Dark Knight Rises. Memento. At number four, Memento. The Prestige. And then at number three, which is how far we got, Batman Begins, which I think we both agree, you know, whatever reservations is pretty good. And your number three? Dunkirk. So we now have number two and number one to do. And as I said, on the basis of how long the last couple took, we've given ourselves a whole podcast for it. So uh, 
So let's get on to number two and number one. And at number two... And remember, two, these are going to be fully spoilerific. Oh, yeah. Sorry, so, I, I mean, we assume that you've seen this stuff, but yeah. we're just letting you know now, spoilers are plenty. Yeah. So if you, if you don't want to know what happens in the movies, go away and watch them and then come back and listen to the podcast. Um, so at number two, for me, The Prestige. At number two, for me... Inception. <gasps> okay. Yes. Okay. Fine. Actually, I shouldn't have because I should have. I should have known that. You should okay, have seen so that coming. I should have seen it coming. Although, it. Okay. So it's okay. So let's start with the prestige. So what number was prestige for you? The prestige for me was number four. Okay. So we both had the prestige for, for in a while our, though. In our it, top was, five. it was. It was going to be. It was probably going to be number three until I did a rewatch of Dunkirk and was like, no, this. I this does. I do like this more. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I I also think we should say, and I know this is, goes without saying, but if we did this list on any different day, things would move mm. around. I mean, it is very so. I'm going to start on the Prestige because, uh, you know, because I had it higher up in the list. I did a screening recently of the Prestige at uh, the the beautiful. I say recently, before lockdown, which is actually a long time ago, um, at the uh, the the Plaza Cinema in Truro, which is one of my favourite cinemas, and we did a 35 mil screening of prestige. I do these regular screenings there and we show 35 mil prints because they've got a lovely 35 mil projector. And then, you know, uh, I do a little introduction to the film and then we have kind of questions afterwards. Um, and it's, it, and it was just thrilling to see the prestige up on the big screen. Now, what's really fascinating for me is I went back to my original review of the prestige and I discovered that I hadn't loved it when I first saw it. And I, I had completely forgotten this. In fact, when I first saw it, I compared it slightly unfavorably to another movie that came out at the same time that was kind of weirdly kind of connected. The Illusionist? Yeah, exactly. And it was one of those weird things in which I was reading my review of it and thinking, you just, you know, I was a good review. I liked it, but I didn't like it enough. And I realized that since then, I've seen The Prestige, I think in total four times most recently on the big screen and every time i see it i think it's better to the point that i and i've as i've been saying recently i've been saying this so much that i had convinced myself that i had always thought it that it is the great overlooked christopher nolan movie that it's, it's certainly it's, the movie that's uh, as we would call the smart choice the smart people, choice <laughs> yeah people like to talk about the prestige as like the on the most underrated of christopher nolan's movies yeah well i think it is because i mean as i said by me i'm guilty of this and it's it is it's really it's one of the the interesting things about being a you know a a weekly film critic is that there isn't whether you like it or not there's an archive of your first reactions to things out there in the world and you can't do anything about them and it's because i've now been a film critic for I mean, when did I start? I mean, I started writing for City Life in 1986 or something like that. Sorry, wow, 1986. I wasn't so even born. No, no, exactly. So, you know, several decades. But having been a weekly film critic pretty much since the sort of, you know, the, since the, the, the early 90s, there is kind of three pretty good decades of of my immediate response to things. And many of them I, I, I can't even bear to go back and look at because I just think I just didn't know what I was talking about. Um, or, you know, 
but the prestige one was particularly interesting to me because I had convinced myself that I had always liked the prestige. And I think that one of the reasons it's as high as it is in my chart is because it grew on me. It's because it's a film that got better every time I saw it. And the last time I saw it up on the big screen, I just thought it's what I love is the story. I mean, there's many things I love. I love the performances. I love the Bowie role because it's so strange. And the first time around, I had no idea what on earth that accent was. And then you look into it and actually that accent is pretty good in terms of who that character is. I love the thing about electricity because electricity is so tied up with the birth of cinema and so much of what Nolan is doing is really to do with cinema. We talked about this, about, you know, cinema being a time machine and, and memory, but the genius of the prestige is it's a film that begins by telling you what it's going to do and then does it and still surprises you. And also it's it's, a magic trick. It's a magic trick. It's a magic trick that, and and it it actually, they quite literally (laughs) explain the magic trick. Obviously it's based on a literary source, but they quite literally explain the magic trick and then they do the magic trick and you go, Oh my God, I didn't see that coming. I didn't see that happening. Although the reason it works is because you did see it coming. You just didn't know that you had seen it coming. And or to use Michael Caine's dialogue, you didn't want to. You didn't want to. You didn't want to, yeah, because you, you, you want, want to be surprised. To work. Yeah, exactly. And you know, I think that that is some kind of genius because in a way, you know, all cinema is a magic trick. That's you know, you go back to to, to Melies and everything, you know, everything is a magic trick. And this is, you know, the the source for this, which is the, the Christopher Priest's prestige, um, has got all those ideas and everything. And it's, you know, it's all there. It's a brilliant, uh, it's a brilliant source. But what Christopher Nolan and Jonathan Nolan, again, you know, working together, have done is to bring all those ideas to cinematic life, and then create the magic trick in front of you, while it's you know, while it's, it's, it's happening. So it's like, I mean, I've always liked magic anyway. I, I, you know, I, I, I love a, a bit of prestidigitation or whatever it's called, but cinema is a magic trick for me. And I think that prestige is the most perfect incarnation of that magic trick. Plus it has an emotional clout that is quite devastating because when you know what's going on the second time round, it's worse and the third time yeah, round, th- it's worse. I think you'd better get dressed, sir. Ruth, you're late and more drunk than usual. Now get down below stairs right away. No. No, we need to have a little chat, Mr. Cutter. We have a problem. Cutter? Borden's performing right across the street. Yeah, we have a bigger problem. Root. He's realized he can make demands. Well, he's blackmailing us? I was surprised to tell you the truth. It usually takes him a lot longer to figure it out. Well, how much does he want? Well, it makes no difference. We've got to stop doing the trick. Stop the trick? Cut it, look at this. Well, look at yesterday's. Look at last week, where they said you were the premier stage performer in London. Not magician, mind you. Performer of any kind. Well, what's your point? My point is, Robert, is you climb too high to get away with professional embarrassment. We don't do any tricks we can't control. He's paying what everyone's for now. We keep doing the trick until Borden opens, and then we'll phase it out. I think it's a, a film that does get 
better on rewatch. I think when you do know what's going on, it's a very, very interesting um, thing to watch because it's hiding in plain sight from the very, very start. It's telling yeah. you exactly what's going on. The demonstration with the bird, I'm thinking specifically about a scene where a little boy says, where's its brother? Where's its brother, yeah. Because the kid sees straight through and, and we as adults don't. We're, we're, we're blind to it, which I think is really interesting. I think it's a film about duality and sacrifice and obsession and a continuation of Nolan's, uh, 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 you know, and both Nolan's actually, Jonathan Nolan and Christopher Nolan's obsession with uh, the, the, the duality of man, the, the sort of the, the, the shadow and, and, the, and, the, and the, the personality, the persona that we show everybody and, and taking that to a literal sense of having them be twins, um, which I'll get to in a, in a moment. Yeah. But uh, I think that this movie like weaves beautifully between timelines and the first sort of act that might be one of my favorite sections of the whole film is when they're both reading each other's notebooks but they're also we're using memory as well and it, it respects you as the audience member as well to know what's going on and where we are and i think that the filmmaking is so good the editing is so good the cinematography is so good the acting is so good that you just let it take you wherever you want it to go um i think it's, it's a also, perfect it's, script it's, yeah, I think the no, I think the, the, the script is I think the script is absolutely brilliant. But it's also one of the films in which it has, um, like for example, there are nods to surrealism, like the whole thing with the hat, and then the several hats. You know, the image yeah. of the hats, uh, the thing with the light bulbs in the ground. These are essentially Bunuelian images. These are things that you kind of recognise from the you know from the history of surrealist cinema. And yet what it's doing is a science fiction story, actually. It's a, you know, it's a science fiction story about electricity traveling from one place to another. Um, there's, a, there's a sort of strong genetic connection between what's happening in, uh, in The Prestige and what happens in David Cronenberg's The Fly. I mean, you, you know, you, it's, it's, it's on one level, it's a movie about teleportation. It's a movie about transference. It's a m movie about multiplication. It's a movie about, I mean, and all of that is often encompassed in a single surreal image, like a, you know, a, a piece of ground with a whole lot of weird stuff on it that shouldn't be there and yet is there. And I've always, one of the things I've always loved about cinema is the small detail that tells you the large thing. You know, there's a thing at the end of, um, I'm not a huge fan of this movie, but there's a thing at the end of Music Box, which is the Joe Esterhouse scripted uh, movie, in which the whole thing is about, you know, is he a terrible person? Isn't he a terrible person? And then during the course of the movie, you find out that he isn't a terrible person. And in the end, she opens the music box and the, the reveal is he is the thing that he said he wasn't because it's a tiny detail. There's a moment in um, uh, Jagged Edge when she gets the typewriter down and she touches the key that's got the wonky letter. And that wonky letter tells her that it is him, the guy that she, that, that, you know, it actually is him. But one of the joys of the prestige is it has this thing which it will give you a mysterious image in which there is so much, you learn so much from it, but you actually don't really understand what it is. And it comes back to what you said very astutely, which is what Michael Caine says, is you do know it, but you don't want to know it because you want, yeah. to, you want the trick to work. You want the thing to, to play out. From the very start, the opening shot is all the hats and you don't, I think there's also an element as well of this film seems to be quite grounded for a lot of the time. It seems to be grounded in some realities. And then you are asked to suspend your disbelief to believe that who is it? Who is David Bowie playing? Nikola Tesla. Yes. He's playing Tesla. 
because I, I love I love that it's it's a rivalry between two magicians, but then it's also a rivalry between Tesla and Edison. Yeah, yeah, um, exactly. And that's sort of like the background of all of it, which is really also also ties into the birth of cinema because there's the whole thing about who got the first projection going and and the edison company also this is this is all tied in there with with the history of where cinema comes from because cinema and electricity are tied so closely together and that rivalry it's in the genetics of the film sorry carry on jack i interrupted you no it's fine um yeah the film asks you to believe that tesla has invented a cloning machine and i think it takes you a while on the first time to, I think that's where some, some people get lost in, in, in the prestige. I think they lose it there. They're like, oh no, I thought we were dealing with magic tricks and all the rest of it and, and, and playing with perception. And, and, but now you're asking me to believe in real magic. But actually, when you rewatch it, in the first 15 minutes, Michael Caine says, destroy this. This wasn't made by yeah, a yeah, magician. Yeah. This was made by a wizard. Yes, and I think and so. So when you rewatch it, I think it's easier to accept that stuff if you just struggled with it on the first watch, which I think I probably did, but I can't remember. But I think that that plot point is probably where I went, mm, and I think a lot of people do. But actually, on rewatch, the thing that I struggle with in terms of um, suspending disbelief, it, and I know uh, this is it, is that because I think it's a perfect script. I think it's it you know it sets up and knocks down everything. It, it unravels brilliantly like all, all of it's just so tight um but the thing that i struggle with is the fact that they are twin brothers who are living one life and i don't think i almost go like why did rebecca hall have to kill herself why couldn't the one who loved rebecca hall always be with rebecca hall and i know that that's missing the point i know that the point is it's all a performance. We have to be one person. And that includes doing things we don't want to do sometimes. And, and that obviously as well, in turn, is a thematic thing in terms of what human beings do in terms of the people, that, the person that they show to the, the public facing and the person they are in private or, or the thing that they hide. And that's beautifully performed by Christian Bale, who sometimes is incredibly aggressive and then sometimes very gentle and calm. And you can tell the difference between who he is. He almost feels schizophrenic sometimes, yeah. but you don't know why, because that's the way that human, that's the, it's human nature. We are like that. Sometimes we are different people. We bring out different sides of ourselves. And this is Nolan again, making that a literal thing. But I go onto the, I can't help but be on that level of, I just don't know why you couldn't have just changed so that the one who was with Rebecca Hall would always be with Rebecca Hall because you love Rebecca Hall. Like, but, but you know, it, it's again, it's about sacrifice and duality and all these things. Yeah, so well, I get it, but I but just it, can't help. But like, that's the bit that I suspend my disbelief in. And just to make a little just point here, no, sure. my housemates are identical twins. Oh, really? <laughs> so they were watching. Yeah, they were watching it, being like, "Nah, <laughs> bullshit." Never work. <laughs> Can I ask you a question? Have you ever seen them in the same room or is it actually just one guy pretending to be two people? <laughs> um, the, well, this is it. One of the things that, that, that really works for me, and again, you know, plot spoiler-tastic, we're just going to leap in with both feet here. So if you don't want to know what happens in the prestige, you know, just go watch it now and then come back. The, is it, the, the philosophical question about the way the trick works is he dies every time. And yeah. when he dies, he is cloned and there is another version of him. And the question, and I, this, I, I can't get my head around this because it's, it, even now it just does, does my head in, is the version that, the new version has not lived his life. It has his memories. It's a clone of him, but it has yep. not lived his life. Yep. But the actual him every time dies. And the, 
And the reason the thing is taking the toll on him is because he has died so many times. And it's not that he's died and come back to life. He's died. He's dead. And it's a, it's another version. And I was put in mind of um, Duncan Jones's moon. Uh, you know, that yeah. thing about if you're, you, you know, you're in a space with the doppelganger, the doppelganger isn't you. I mean, it is you in every single possible way because it is a clone, but it's not you. And I think that one of the things that the prestige does brilliantly is that idea of alive and dead. It's the Schrodinger's cat film, isn't it? It's the, you know, he is simultaneously alive and dead. And the thing that makes it so awful is the realization that every night he dies. He goes he's into preparing the himself and as well. Exactly. When, when he's and on stage, when you're watching it and he asks somebody to come on stage and check the machine, he's there taking off his, his jacket and stuff. He takes off his wedding ring and gives it to, because, and that's him. Yeah, because that has to, to be done. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that is just genius because I think the horror of that, the, the, uh, the unutterable horror of that is so well captured that even thinking about it now gives me the chills that yeah. every single time he, I, does, I wonder, he dies. Oh, and it's not that he dies and he comes back. He doesn't die and come back. He dies. And then somebody The first time he does back. it as well, he, he doesn't even do it. Like, like, like when the first one time he does it and he, the other version of him appears in front of him, I'm pretty sure before he shoots him, he says, no, I, I think he's going to be like, I'm the real one. Like yeah, he, yeah. he's about to say, I'm the real one. Yes, exactly. Um, which is horrible. And I, I, another point I wanted to bring up, there's two things I wanted to bring up here. One's positive, one's negative. Okay. Uh, the positive in, in terms of the script, I think a way of discussing how sharp I think this script is, is how it's doing multiple things at once all the time. So like, Killing Hugh Jackman's wife at the start of the film is an amazing way of showing this is why their rivalry is so personal. Yeah. It's all about this. Like there's a, there was a yeah. mistake he made. And I think that then in turn at the funeral, when he says, did you, which knot did you tie? And he says, I don't know. When you watch it a second time, I think he's telling the truth. I think that yeah, that's the one who didn't know. do it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. He doesn't actually know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and then uh, I think that then becomes because later in the film, he says, I don't care about my wife. I care about his secret. And that moment, I remember watching it this time, I went, oh. And I, didn't re I forgot that that happened where he was that obsessed with yeah. what was going on that he'd completely forgotten why he was doing it to begin with. I'm sorry for your loss, Angie. Would you like to do time? I keep asking myself that. And? When he says, you know, which knot did you tie? And he says, I don't know. You don't know? The thing that reminds mm. me of, I may have mentioned this before, is one of my favourite lines in any novel ever is, um, is a thing in Peter Straub's ghost story. Have I told you this before about the guy looking out the window? No, I don't Elmer. think so. Okay, so cut a very long story short. Ghost story, which is a Peter Straub novel, which is, Gene, if you haven't read it, just read it. It's just brilliant. And it's like every ghost story ever in one, in one novel. And at the center of it is this relationship between the central character and this woman, Alma Mobley, Eva Garley, blah, blah. And there is a scene in the novel when he's lying in bed and he wakes up and she's looking out the window and she's looking out the window at the moon, I think, or into the night. And she says something. And the first time he says it, he thinks that she says, I saw a ghost. And then later on in the novel, it comes back to it. And he says he realizes that she didn't say that. 
what she said is, I am a ghost. And then the third section of it, he comes back to it for the third time and he realizes that she didn't say that. What she said was, you are a ghost. You're a ghost. And I get that with the prestige that it's, it's, you know, it's Schrodinger's cat. It's alive and dead. It's guilty and not guilty, culpable and not culpable. He did. And he didn't that both those things exist at the same time. And that so much of the film is about, you know, it's this thing about alternating current as well. You know, it's the yes, no, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no, back foot. Everything about it is genius. Everything about it is genius. Yeah, and it is. Right down to the it, fact it, that it, I got it wrong where... the first time round. <laughs> <laughs> to the point where when, when he's going to kill him, when he's, when he, when he's going to get killed, when he's going to get executed, and he's got the rope around his neck, and just the abracadabra, and then like dropping, dropping the ball, and then the reveal being... I have a twin brother. Like all of that is just leading up to, and I think as well, like the fact that the audience are left to consider like which one was allowed to stay alive. And my feeling yeah, is the yeah. one who was the actual father of the child. That would be my okay. guess. Okay. Um, but again, I don't think it matters. But they, but Jack, just to, to hark back to something else we were saying before, I'd like to say that I feel that's how I feel about the end of Dark Knight Rises. You see, I think you don't know. I know, I know that you think that you do know, but I think that in, in Nolan's DNA, you don't know unless it's interstellar, in which case Matthew McConaughey comes out from behind the bookshelf and explains everything to you. So I have, I have two criticisms. The first one is silly. Uh, The movie ends, it cuts to black in, and it, and it leaves you with all that to consider. And in such a weird, like anti-Nolan way, a pop song just starts playing. Oh yeah, like, yeah okay. Over the credits, which yeah. is such a mood ruiner. It's this Tom York song, which I, yeah. I don't really know very well. But like, I watched. I was like, I forgot that this just. And it, it's so quick. It's so. It just <laughs> it, it moves over. Like, forget it. Like yeah. that. And the other thing, and I think this is a thing across quite a lot of Nolan's movies, anyway. But here, I felt it like so, so strongly is that the female characters are duds. They are, okay. they are literally um, assistants and they are functional. I think Rebecca Hall gives a pretty good performance. Scott Johansson's trying to do an English accent and it's not great, but neither one of them have got anything to do. And I was really like aware of it this time, watching it being like, yeah, okay. they, they, they are such function. They are like basically set dressing in this film. And I get it because the film's not about them. But I think we've, all of us are becoming much more aware these days about um, representation across the board. And I was watching this movie and being like, yeah, like this is extremely masculine. Like no, right. None of the characters are, 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 who are interesting at all, who have anything to say, are, um, are women or of color or anything like that. And you know, the of color thing is, is, is difficult because of the time period it was set in. But, eh. but like the women especially, the ones who are in it, they are... They are barely characters uh, and they, and everything they do is based on loving a man and losing a man and all the rest of it. Yeah. I'll accept that as a criticism. Um, I still love the film. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. So now this brings us on to uh, the number one spot. And, you know, it's not a revelation because it's the only two left. So for me, number one is Inception. And for you, number one is? The Dark Knight. Okay. So I had The Dark Knight at number six. So it wasn't even, no, no. But, you know, as I said before, you know, this, I don't think any of them are bad. Um, so uh, we are, we're, we're closer on Inception than we are on Dark Knight. So let's, let's do Dark Knight first. And then we can end on a moment of unity. Okay. Okay. So uh, you go first. Okay. Um, I think I feel the way about the Dark Knight that you probably feel about The Exorcist. Yeah. Okay. Just to link it closely to something, because I've already said this before on this podcast, but I think that you can pull the Dark Knight to pieces and put it back together, and it still works. And I think that's how you've described The Exorcist, and that's just how I feel about yeah. this movie as well. I think that. I, I could talk about this for a, a whole... I could probably talk about it for the length of the film, if not more, but I'll try and be as concise as I can be. From the very, very start of the movie, from the introduction, you know, the prologue scene in, in, the, in the bank robbery, I think it just pulls you in to a very specific tone. And that tone is like mixed between Michael Mann's sort of heisty heat movie and a comic book movie unlike anything we've ever seen. Just like to say that I would pay good money to see Michael Mann's heisty heat. <laughs> that's, 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 that's a very tip-top title. <laughs> um, and as soon as the prologue ends and Hans Zimmer and James Newton Howard's score takes over and you get just like this introduction to here's Gotham City, here's what Gotham is like tonight. And the editing and the, the music and the cinematography all work well together. I don't know if you remember, but there's this like very like almost... Uh, the, the flow to the way that it moves. There's like a, there's almost like a continuous nature to the dialogue. There's like a, an intro to the, to the mayor having an interview about where Gotham is at and then he's interrupted, but the, se- the sentence almost continues with mm-hmm. the next person and everything yeah. just feels like it flows together. And then there's the, uh, the Batmobile drug deal that happens with Scarecrow where the Batmobile turns up but Batman isn't in it. And that scene to me is like an argument against anybody who says that this movie isn't comic booky. Like the people who are like, oh, it's taking itself too seriously. I Do don't people say does. that? Yeah. People, oh, take, them, people say know. that The Dark Knight takes itself too seriously. I yeah. don't. I think yeah. it's earnest. I think it believes in what it's doing. Yeah, I agree. I, I absolutely agree. Fully, fully just like invest itself into, no, yeah. this, is, this is it. This is reality. We're not making fun of ourselves. Yeah. This is it. And it, I mean, just imagine the room where they're like, we're going to have a drug deal, but it's Scarecrow and then Batman shows up and there's loads of other Batman there. Like it's mental. It's so, so great. I think um, 
the the implementation of of like the redesign of the Batman suit into the into the into the uh, story is really really good uh, to make that like a realistic part of it. Like we want Batman to be able to turn his head, so we'll write that into the story. Um, yeah, look, I, I could talk about the details that I like, but I think overall, my big thing is that it changed cinema. It all of cinema changed after the Dark Knight was made. All you have to do is look at Skyfall, for example. Um, the way that everything shifted after this movie is because of the, how this was treated. And I haven't even mentioned Heath Ledger's Joker yet, but we'll get to that. But I think what's happened over the 12 years since it's existed is that for me, just personally, I've looked at it several different ways. I've looked at it as just, you know, I don't even know how to describe I'm so close to it. I almost feel like I can't even talk about it critically. Like it's just emotion now. It doesn't even feel like I can be intelligent and talk about like why I think things work. I think it just does. And I've looked at it so many different ways, but lately what's really, really spoken to me about the dark Knight is that duality of man thing that Nolan seems to be so, um, both Nolans seem to be so obsessed by. And I've been reading a lot of theories lately about Carl Jung and his sort of in, uh, his theories on the personality and how we have a persona and we are an, there is an ego and then there's a shadow self and that the movie now I watch it and I can see it totally. The idea that Bruce Wayne is the, is the ego in between Batman is the thing that he's striving to be. And the Joker is the deeply resentful beast that just wants to get out and is telling Batman like that scene in the interrogation room when they're talking to each other. I think the reason why that works and resonates so much with people, unlike it, you know, people have, very quick to say that's like the scene in heat when there's two the cop and the criminal and realizing how similar they are i think it's even more than that i think that nolan is taking what used to be a um a story of the gods a myth a mythological story and is making it a modern day uh story with using superheroes that scene is bruce wayne's uh internal sort of like thoughts that scene is the joker looking at batman and saying, you are like me, admit you it. Me. You, yeah, you complete me. Like it's, it's his internal thoughts to me. Like we are, you're bad. Like you're like this. You're, it's, you're, and don't, don't talk like one of those guys. Like, cause you're not those guys. And I'll mm. tell you that everybody's like this. And I watching it sometimes and being like, oh, he's truly insane. And he really believes what he's talking about. And then actually shifting to, no, that's a part of, that's something that you need to accept is that you have that part of yourself that talks to you like that. And taking that, theory even further how do you display somebody who hasn't integrated their shadow self and their superego how do you display that split down the middle two-face somebody who hasn't properly integrated those sides of himself becomes somebody who gives up all belief in morals and just leaves everything to chance and things that are fair i think that there is a lot of very intelligent stuff under the hood of the dark Knight, And that's why I think it lasts as long as it lasts. And as well as that on a technical level, I think the filmmaking is sublime. I think that uh, watching this and inception, we'll talk about the cinematography and in inception because that's mm -hmm. the one that Wally Fister won the Oscar for. I just miss Wally Fister shooting movies. I know, I, know, I, 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 know. I miss him so much. Um, yeah. I, I, I also, again, to relate it, this is the last thing I'll say before I, I let you uh, take over, but Relating again to The Exorcist, and it's because I've seen it recently when I, before I rewatched it, the Joker's end 
was always like a thing that frustrated me just as somebody was like, oh, he's just left there hanging. Like, and we never really get a conclusion as to what happens to him. But it really made me think of that moment in The Exorcist when he's like, I should tell you about the backstory. I should tell you about this. And he goes, no, it doesn't matter. Don't engage with the demon. And that moment there is Batman leaves it. Batman leaves him hanging there for somebody else. And at that moment feels to me like, don't engage with the demon. He's going to keep talking to you. He's going to keep convincing you that you're wrong. He's going to keep coming up. There's even a moment when Batman says to him in his big gruff voice, you'll be in a padded cell forever. And like the people of Gotham have just shown you that they're better than you. And he said, until, until this though, I've got another thing to say. And Batman literally goes, like he literally just like deflates. He's like, oh, you keep yammering on. You've always got something to say, haven't you? And then he just leaves him hanging there for somebody else. And the last thing he does is he cries out. Um, Yeah. And I think that, I think there's so much going on there. Um, And it, 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 like I say, it changed cinema. It also, personally like changed me like in terms of how i approach all movies and cinema it was the thing that defined you know i actually think this is my generation's like godfather part two i think it's the the film that's defined my generation and we'll be made fun of it forever like i like my 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 specific generation will be made fun of for how much we like the dark knight because one day a guy dressed as a clown and a guy dressed as a bat is just going to seem stupid and there'll be something else exploring these same themes dressed up in, in, a bit differently because it's actually the same as the exorcist It's the exact same thing except in the 70s uh, you know going against religion and and using the darkness there and using a priest you, those two archetypes were the was the way of expressing this internal battle we all have and in the mid 2000s it was a guy dressed as a bat and a guy dressed as a clown and in another 10 years i'm not sure what it will be but those same ideas will live on forever and that's just what resonated with me when i saw it ah, the good cop bad cop routine not exactly. Oh. 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 Never start with the head. The victim gets all fuzzy. He can't feel the neck. See? You wanted me. Here I am. I wanted to see what you'd do. And you didn't disappoint. Well, the thing I'm going to say is I'm not going to, I'm not going to argue with any of that because firstly, I think that all responses to movies are personal and I know how much I know how I can tell how much that movie means to you. Um, and I don't think any of the things you're saying are wrong. Um, and I don't, I, I love loads of elements of the dark Knight, as I love loads of elements of all the Nolan movies. The question I asked the first time I saw it and I continue to ask this is I admire it. Why don't I love it? And I've, I've found many ways of attempting to explain that. And one of them, the thing that I always come back to is it's, you know, you said there's a lot of stuff going on under the hood. And my, my issue is that there's too much stuff going on. It's too much subtext um, is that, that it is a, it is a movie of ideas and what it doesn't have is the clarity or simplicity of the prestige in which the prestige goes like that. And dark Knight goes like that, you know, um, a treat for patreon viewers yeah to do with waving my, my hands around but, but there is a through line in prestige in which everything everything is moving in the same direction and there is a point in dark night and it actually it is it is the ferry scene um and i i'm not going to argue the point about it because i know that it works for many people the ferry scene was the point at which i felt most 
that somebody was playing a game of checkers with me, that somebody was, somebody was going, and, and, you know, somebody was actually doing the Joker thing of, and, uh, and, and, you know, I heard so many people afterwards discussing, you know, what's happened philosophically, what's happening in that sequence. I had an emotional disengagement with it at that point, And I don't think I ever got it back. Funnily enough, watching bits of the dark Knight out of context, I've had a very profound emotion that the scene, the interview scene, the, you know, you complete me scene is actually really really astonishing it is. there are individual set pieces that are astonishing i never got on with the two-faced character i never thought that was i mean it's inter- when you describe it as you know the fracture yes but it's too it's too obvious in fact to be honest with you even in the original comic book inception two-faced was always an issue I mean, I, I, of all the sort of the, the, the nemesis characters, Two-Face was always the one that just seemed to me to be too much of a, of, of a, of a theoretical construct. I mean, I end up thinking about Ambush Bug because it's just, it feels slightly lazy to me. He is Two-Faced, you know, the scratch, it's just, mm. um, whereas actually I think there is more complexity in a lot of the other characters. But having said all of that, it comes back to me to the fact that when I first saw it, I didn't have the same emotional engagement that I did with Batman Begins. And I know a lot of what my problem, and it's a, it's a passing problem, a lot of what my problem with Dark Knight was that after Batman Begins, I was so hyped up that Dark Knight didn't emotionally engage me. And after Dark Knight, I was so worried that I wouldn't be emotionally engaged by Dark Knight Rises, that it did, you know what I mean? It's kind of, in a way, a lot of what I'm reacting to those films is to do with my expectation. And I I understand that. And I also understand that it's very hard to get past your first response to a film. So what I'd say is, I think all those things that you've said about Dark Knight are right. I wish that I felt as emotional about it as you do. Because believe me, I, you know, I'm an old fart, but I know enough people who are younger than me who have exactly that reaction that you do. Um, it, I've never had it with Dark Knight. I've had it with individual elements of Dark Knight, but I've never had it with the whole film. But I'm perfectly willing to accept that that may be a failing on my part and may have as much to do with the way that I went into it, expecting it. I can, rem- I can remember the moment of emotional disengagement, and I remember watching the fairy sequence and thinking, why isn't this grabbing me? Why isn't this? And, and, and from, from there on, it was very hard for the film to go back, even though I spent the rest of it thinking, this looks amazing. I love this. I love that. I, the Two-Face thing was never going to work for me. It was never going to work for me because I was just, I, you know, I, I have, as I said, I'm more emotionally engaged with the idea of ambush bug than I am with the idea of two face. <laughs> um, uh, but then th- that's just, you know, that's just me. That, that, was- that again is you bringing your sort of already your ideas of what that character is and how that works. Exactly. Yeah, no, exactly. It is. And, and, I, I, and I'd never really thought about two face or, or, or I never thought he was very particularly compelling really. And I think in this film, what they do is they build up Harvey Dent so well that from the begin- actually watching the film again and watching him and his character arc specifically, I think Aaron Eckhart's doing an incredible job. And I think they do a really good job of like laying out what his journey is. So from yeah. the very, very start in, in the, when you, when you meet Harvey Dent, there's a very, very small exchange. that's very easy to miss. Um, when he says like, I hear they've got a different nickname for me and Gordon says, Oh, I wouldn't know anything about that. 
Like, and, and you find out that the reason why they call him Two-Face is because he's able to switch on a dime. Yeah, if, you yeah. don't, if you're not able to sort of help him, he will drop you and he will turn yeah. into somebody else. And that already, yeah. to me, feels like he's already split. He's already yeah, got yeah. This, this side of himself that's like carry. And you see it like when he's kidnapped one of the Joker's thugs and he's intimidating him. Like you can see him, like the, 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 the anger and all that stuff that you don't see usually, but he's, he's literally in a dark alleyway. He's in the dark space. He's in the depths. And you can see that side of him coming out when he's not public facing. And I love that sort of stuff. And I think that, again, it's obvious imagery, but it's like it's going in and you don't really know it when you're watching it, but you know it. Um, yeah. Another piece of obvious imagery as well that I'll just point out that everybody's pointed out before, but it's one of my favorite details in the whole film <clears throat> is in that interrogation scene with the Joker. In the moment uh, between them, the camera is constantly sort of slowly drifting from one side of the shoulder to the other. And there's this lovely, lovely section and it's completely intentional. I won't hear otherwise. There is a bit where the Joker says, you're a freak like me. And at that moment, Nolan and Lee Smith cut to, the, to, see, to see from Joker to Batman and Batman, the 180 degree rule, rule has been broken and now Joker and Batman are on the same side of the screen. Right. And there's things like that that are just, it feels like a movie that's just on every level of it technical all the way down to the to the to the subtext it they're thinking constantly about what it is we're trying to say and what it is we're exploring and to me it feels like an internal battle the entire time like bruce wayne at the start talks about batman like it's not him batman has no limits he's always talking about this thing he's striving to be what i can do what i what i'm capable of i i I think it's i think it's i think it's great i think it's i think it's one of the best films ever made (laughs) and that is and that's just And that, that's the generation I'm from. Well, then it brings us to the number one spot, which for me, and it's number two for you, is Inception. Mm-hmm. And again, I'll go first because, because um, you know, I had this higher up the list. <laughs> this, so much of this is to do with, uh, you know, with, with first viewings. I saw Inception and I just went, oh my God. What, what Inception demonstrates is that just because a film is really expensive and really populist, it doesn't have to be stupid. In fact, I ended up basically writing an entire book about how what Inception demonstrated was that the idea that blockbusters have to be dumbed down is rubbish. Yep. That, it, that There were certain things that you could do to ensure that a blockbuster would make money. And I mean, some of the rules that I came up with are probably not right, but I think actually, essentially, they were broadly correct. And it was to do with, you know, it has to have a certain level of spectacle. It has to have a certain level of star. You know, um, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, you have to have a star presence in it. Um, it. It has to not be a comedy because comedy is one of the places that you can lose your shirt, particularly expensively. I mean, most of the really, really big, uh, expensive comedies, weirdly enough, end up failing. Um, and yet what Inception did, we said, okay, we'll tick all the boxes. We'll give you the spectacle. We'll give you the event. We'll give you the stars. I'm just going to make a movie that's basically um, as complicated as I want it to be, but not complicated in a clever, clever, complicated way. And this is one of the things that people say about Inception. It drives me nuts. People say, the thing about Inception is it's so, you know, it, it knows, it's just like it's showing off. It, no, it's not. It really isn't. Actually, Inception is really simple. Mm. And in fact, it's, 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 when you look at the, the, time, the time differentiation thing, which runs all the way through Nolan, you know, whether it's Memento and going backwards and forwards, or whether it's um, uh, Interstellar with the, the different time and the different gravity and the different planets, or whether it's Dunkirk with three time frames playing out one hour, one day, one week, whatever it is, playing out simultaneously. 
in the case of Inception, that idea about you're simply going down into levels, and the further down in the levels you go, the longer things. It's, it's really that's a very it's a really straightforward idea. It's a and really it's genius at the same time. It, it's genius, and it's really straightforward. I will tell you, one of the funniest things that happened to me in a cinema was when I was seeing I saw Inception in the cinema probably about six times, and in one of the screenings, luckily I'd seen it before, so I, it didn't bother me, but. During the final one, you know, the intercross cutting sequences yeah. he's doing when Joseph Gordon Levitt's tying everybody up when they've got no gravity and the, you know, all the rest of it. And that it cuts to the, the van falling. Yeah. Yeah. And I just heard a woman go, oh, Is that van still falling? And I was like, <laughs> Yes, because if it wasn't, they'd all, they, they'd be trapped. The story would be, Are you following this? <laughs> 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 that's kind of genius actually that <laughs> fan's still falling <laughs> just in the back just like just oh, i just have this like memory of just hearing it off in the cinema so just abstractly just hearing that voice that man's <laughs> got the basic layout bookstore cafe almost everything else is here too who are the people projections of my subconscious is yours yes remember you are the dreamer you build this world i am the subject my mind populates it. You can literally talk to my subconscious. That's one of the ways we extract information from the subject. How else do you do it? By creating something secure like a, like a bank vault or a jail, the mind automatically fills it with information it's trying to protect. Understand? Then you break in and steal it. Well. I guess I thought that the dream space would be all about the visual, but it's more about the feel of it. My question is, what happens when you start messing with the physics of it all? In terms of the way it's shot, I mean, it is breathtaking, the way it looks, the way in which mechanical effects are used, the whole, you know, the corridor sequence. Oh, my the way God. In, I mean, it's just, even oh. now, and I've seen all the stuff about how they do it, and I don't understand it. Yeah. I mean, you know, even now you look at it and you go, I mean, do you remember the trailer? The trailer was the corridor. Yeah. And we were all watching it going, what the fuck? You know, what? How, how is the, where, where, which way is It's up? doing what I think cinema should be doing, which is taking the old ideas and then going out, oh, what can we do with it now? We've got more technology rather than yeah. just doing away with it and replacing it. I think that's what Nolan does really well is he's but sparing also, but, the users. But also stuff. keeping, you know, absolutely keeping your feet in the knowledge of the history of mechanical effects. You know, I mean, yes, it's full of, you know, CG and all that, some, you know, Paris bending over all that stuff. Yes. But there are times when, you know, you, you, you think back to 2001 and Kubrick doing things mechanically, just because you, you can do it in another way. There may be a reason that you, that's better for doing it mechanically. And, um, and I, I also, I love the fact that it's a film that, um, that references itself, but doesn't overdo it. So the, sorry, whose subconscious are we in? Yeah. You know, the, all, all that stuff. Whose dream are we going into exactly? Yeah, <laughs> to which the answer is Christopher Nolan's dream. And that's the yeah. answer with all of these. It is. With all of these, you are going into Christopher Nolan's dream. I mean, I, this was a movie in which I felt like I had stepped into his head. I came out of this room. I've only ever, I've interviewed Nolan a couple of times. So I've maybe been in a room with him tops 30 minutes, right? So I don't know him from Adam. I bumped into him in the BFI bookshop and I gave him a copy of my silent running book because I'm a pathetic fanboy. Right? <laughs> but I don't know him 
But in Inception, I felt like I'd spent the duration of that film in his head. I genuinely and think that that is the best way of describing it when people say, whose dream is it? I think that that is absolutely the best way of putting it. And the evidence for that is that when Leo DiCaprio talked about taking on this role, he was like, I read the script and was really impressed by it, but I had to spend time with Nolan talking about it and unpacking it and just and hearing all the stuff that he had that he wanted to do. Yeah. That's all you're seeing. You're seeing... And that's all cinema is. Is I think Martin Scorsese even said something like, I'm going to try and show you the world the way that I see it. And that, I'm going to try and show you that for two hours. And yeah. I think that that is absolutely the best way of interpreting Inception. Also, the, the other thing that's really interesting about Inception, and we were talking before about MacGuffins, and you said the thing with um, Batman Begins and, you know, there's a bomb. Here's the thing with Inception. What are they actually trying to do? So this is the genius of it. I think that this is the absolute crux genius of Inception. Is that I I'm asking. I'm no, but just to say I'm asking rhetorically. I'm not oh, saying I, I'm not, but but I'm. But I, I would like you to explain it. But I am asking rhetorically. Okay. What exactly are they trying to do? They are trying to convince. They are trying to give a uh, a person an emotional reaction in order to change his mind about something about for a financial about uh, a business decision to, to, to shut down his father's company so and that he can, so he can rebuild his own stuff. Like, it, literally, it, it literally doesn't matter. Yeah, You're right. Exactly. That, that is what okay. they're trying to do. It they're is, trying to give somebody an is, emotional reaction. It is the biggest MacGuffin yep. in the history of cinema. This is the what, genius of it. And it does it on so many is, different levels. What all of this is about is about making him change his mind about breaking down the company. Yep. If you pitch that to somebody, you'd be like, that sounds fucking boring. It go, it's, it go, it's an industrial espionage drama <laughs> in, which the, in which during the course of a plane flight, somebody is going to change their mind about a company. Yep. You go, I don't want to see that film. <laughs> so, it's not called Inception. That's called Comatose. It's just like, you know, who fucking cares? It's called Dull the Movie. Yeah, like, so that, that, so... I think that the whole thing is a MacGuffin and you, it goes back to what you were saying in one of the other podcasts we've done on this, <laughs> the inception, sorry, uh, Christopher Nolan loves cinema and everything is a love letter to cinema yeah. and inception is teaching you constantly about why you like cinema and why it works. Yeah, exactly. So the moment in the, in Paris when they're talking and he says, you know, in a dream, you never really like, you never start at the beginning. You always just sort of end up in the middle of stuff. Yeah. yeah that's him telling you what happens in movies. Like scenes just start and you don't question it. And then he brings attention to it and you go, oh yeah, I didn't even question how we got here. Yeah, um, yeah, so you exactly. are Ellen Page, like t- totally her. And so he's explaining to you how dreams work, but also how cinema works. And that goes even deeper because there's a moment when they're uh, doing that heist thing where they're, they're, they're pitching, how, how do we go about doing this? And there's a moment when Tom Hardy says, well, why don't we say... Um, that breaking down the company is like a screw you to his old man. And then Leonardo DiCaprio says, no, because I think positive emo- emotion trumps negative emotion yeah, yeah, yeah. every time. Yeah, so he's absolutely. telling you that's what a character arc is. You yeah. need to see somebody go through an emotional, cathartic experience in order to feel satisfied that you've seen a good story. And that is the, ho- the whole thing as well about like, whose dream are we in? When are we in someone's dream about whatever? It doesn't matter because the whole thing is just a story about Leonardo DiCaprio coming to terms with the fact that he feels guilty about his wife's death. And you've got Ellen Page, who's playing like uh, an archetypal sort of therapist character. Her name is Ariadne, who in a story leads a menator through a maze or something, which is again, Nolan playing with very literal things. But the whole movie 
is just a device in order for a character. It's another character study. Like yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. About a character having an emotional reaction and it doesn't matter how they do it, it just has to happen. Yeah, well, you know, what you said and, and all of those things which make me smile because I just, you know, I, I, I think industrial, it's important. I mean, I think it changed the film industry in the same way that you think that, um, that Dark Knight did because for me, it proved a point. It proved. You know, I I why, wish why, it changed the Michael... industry more because yeah, actually, when you were talking about like, you know, how what you need in order to make a successful uh, blockbuster movie, Inception is now ten years old, and I don't think I've seen anything come close. And if anyone no. has, it was probably it was probably because of Chris Nolan. Uh, like you know, Skyfall was a good one. I mean, it was well, not an original movie, but Skyfall was absolutely more inspired by The Dark Knight than it was Inception. But I think Inception proved that you can tell a really big original story um and it is original exactly it's not it a franchise original. it's an original yeah. story yeah and um, you can do that on a big scale but nothing is it's been 10 years old now and i don't think anything's come close to being do, to doing what it did i don't think it changed things as much as the dark knight did no well i think that i would agree with that as i said in in this book that i wrote uh, a copy of on the shelf here somewhere but um it was <laughs> called you know it was, it was called the good the bad and the multiplex what's wrong with modern movies and um and it was you know it was written at a point when i was i just thought everything's falling apart um and but it was that particular chapter was the, the thesis of it was this idea that you have to be stupid to be successful is not true. Yep. It is perfectly possible to, it's nothing to do with protecting your investment. And when, you know, producers come in and say, no, no, this is too clever. The audience won't keep up. What I love about Inception, firstly, is it assumes that the audience will keep up. Um, it's not patronizing them. It's not, actually, it's it, later on, um, there are other examples, like Interstellar is much more an example of a film which goes, okay, now hang on a minute, in case you've missed this. Yeah behind the bookshelf, which I think is, you know, in Inception, it doesn't do that. I mean, yes, they have expositional discussion, but it, the exposition in, in Inception reminds me of the exposition in Altered States, the Ken Russell film, um, you know, based on the Paddy Chayefsky script, which I, have you ever seen Altered States? I haven't. Like, honestly, I'll send you a copy. Altered States is brilliant. I mean, it is absolutely barking mad, but it's brilliant. And um, one of the things they weren't allowed to do is they weren't allowed to mess around with the dialogue. And there's a lot of dialogue. So Ken Russell just got everyone to say it very fast because he said otherwise the film would be four hours long. <laughs> and there is this brilliant scene in it in which, I, in fact, I've talked about this in a recent MK3D, in which he's explaining the search for the human soul, that in every atom of every human, there is the history of everything is contained in there. And, and, he's, and it ends up with him saying, you know, the human soul is, you know, Know, it, it, it is real and tangible. You know, it's real. It's something tangible and incarnate. And I'm going to find the fucker. And it's it's like one of those kind of rants which explains the film, but it does so in a way that that's fine because it's funny. And in Inception, there's a lot of that sort of stuff. And the, the thing that you cited there about positive reinforcement is better than negative. Looking at that now in the context of, I hate to say this, but in the context of Trump. A film that actually says that idea, positive reinforcement is better than, you know, love Trump's hate. I'm sorry to say it, but it, Inception is a film whose heart is in the right place. Um, yeah, also, and I, I, like I said earlier, the, um, the exposition in, in, in Inception is dressed up as emotion. And yeah. you can look at any of the scenes, but the one that made me like twig on it this time when I was watching it was the scene between Michael Caine and who's the father figure, he's never really expressed explicitly who he is. I know no. he's Maul's dad. I think that's absolutely who he is. But he's just the father figure, which yeah. is dreamlike in itself. 
and he's talking to him in that study. He's literally being taught something in a study. And that whole scene, if you read it in the script, like black and white, it's just them explaining things back and forth to each other. But yeah. the way that Nolan's directed it, the way that Michael Caine and Leonardo DiCaprio have performed it, everything means something. Everything's got weight and depth. The way that DiCaprio talks, he's got regret behind everything he says, but it's actually teaching you the entire time of like what is going on in the story and what's going to happen next. It's just unlike anything I've ever seen. And, and, and another, another thing I'll say as well, which I always found frustrating, but then on my rewatch this time, enjoyed because the film doesn't make a big deal out of the fact that Leo DiCaprio spent 50 years in a dream. He spent 50 years in a dream, got old and then woke up and we're not spending much time talking about how much that's affected his mind. But what's kind of beautiful about that is that that in itself is kind of dreamlike and we don't see him and Maul as old people until he's ready to accept that they have had their time together. And that's when you see them as old people for the first time, because we're completely seeing it through his eyes. I, I think it's great. I think that the music is scored almost operatically throughout the entire thing. It sort of like guides you through all of it. And obviously that changed cinema because the boong started to become used <laughs> in everything. And I've heard Hansen, but maybe even the interview that you did with him, like he got frustrated by that being used yeah, because yeah, he was yeah. using it for story reasons. You can tell by how elongated some of those like huge noises you know, are. You know, it's a, I know you know this, but you know the boong, but it's it's the slowed down version of... Of, of, uh, of, uh, uh, you know, just, of course, the lovely... Of no regrets. Just, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so... Um, as, a, as, a, as Barry Humphrey said, moi, je ne regrette rien. <laughs> So that those, but those along, if you pay attention to them, I'm not a musician, so I'm not going to speak very eloquently about this, but I'm sure that the deeper down in the dreams you go, the longer they get. Yeah. Honk, yeah. honk, 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 honk. <laughs> it's, it's okay. Now, Jack, look, I'm now aware that in, in, in truly Jackson fashion, yeah, it's literally, this is return of the King. I mean, you know, the, the hobbits have all gone off. They've all waved goodbye. I'm going to bring this to a close with a final question because we've talked about many endings of nolan's films and you know is is bruce wayne alive or dead or and uh right, right, you know right. what happens it? um it actually i'm i'm not no here's what i'm going to do i think the question of the spinner at the end of inception is one of those don't even it, it is what it is it is what it it's, is it is evidently what it is and the whole genius of it is that it is exactly what it is. And, you know, people go, oh, well, if you notice it, the very, very, it is what it is. It and was designed I, to make you do this. It was designed to, exactly. And I would say that the wobble is the same as the credit card at the end. <laughs> of, uh, you know, <laughs> it's like, yeah. Straight I think, I think to the that, heart of the periphery. I, you love using that phrase with me. I do. Um, but I think that I completely agree. It doesn't matter because it was designed. I mean, if you're just going to come out of the emotions, that, that moment was definitely designed to make us talk and debate about where. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. What, and you, and you know for a fact that they sat in an editing room for days getting that exactly and right. I, I want to see, because you never <laughs> yeah, see what Chris Nolan's like. I want to see Chris Nolan be like, I want that to go. <laughs> I want it to go. <laughs> And go, cut to black. And I want to see those excitements that he has. Cause like when you cut to black there, he must have sat with Lee Smith being like, that's fucking awesome. That's yeah. fucking awesome. But just and bring it in one frame. Just bring it in one frame. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. It, no, no, it's out another frame. The one thing I will say about it 
is that if you're going to you know, go into the emotion of it, I genuinely think it doesn't matter either way because the character yeah. has accepted yes. that exactly. he was responsible for the exactly. death of his wife Fine. and now he gets to be with yes. his children. Yes, and it now what you matter. have to do, Jack, is you have to accept that the same is true of the credit card. No. It doesn't matter either way. No. The rest of The Dark Knight Rises isn't good enough to have an ending <laughs> as interesting as that. <laughs> no, what, I re- what I really want to see is the outtakes of the guy on set doing the thing you know it's jeff jeff the the, the thing wrangler all right jeff gonna go well that's an interesting jeff. do you think that was practical or do you think that was cgi it's got to be cgi oh i just assumed it was practical it never occurred to me that it's cgi yeah no, i've why not even we, thought about that but the idea of some we, guy being really good at spin <laughs> yes, tops exactly. we need someone who's really good at spinning tops <laughs> lined everything up and he's going some gaffer take, is like i'm good at that take 78 <laughs> Oi, Bernie, do you just, oh, my hand's starting to rough. I've got repetitive strain injury from doing that. Could you just... <laughs> I've never thought about the idea that someone would actually be spinning the top <laughs> and they have to get out of frame quick enough for the camera to pan over. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, it's just, that's what I, sorry, it just never occurred to me that it was anything other than a real thing, but then that's maybe that's because I'm an idiot. Maybe it's obviously CG. I don't know. I just, I just it's not obviously CG. It. But, but uh, yeah, I think that... Somebody had just done the thing. You know, We can all agree that... Inception's ending has burned its way, and a lot of Inception actually has burned its way into the the, the history of cinema. And yeah. Immediately, it was like, "Oh, this is special. This is a special piece of work." And, I, and I'm excited now uh, about about Tenet because it feels like the most, in terms of the trailers, it seems like the most in line with something like Inception. I'm yeah. I'm, I'm interested about it as well because Nolan's team has been so integral to the to the, the things that he makes. And I especially mean that in terms of his musician, which is uh, Hans Zimmer usually, and his editor, Lee Smith, and and Hoyt van Hoyt to Hoyt Hoyt since uh, <laughs> Wally Fister has, has, has moved on. Um, but for, for Tenet, a lot of that's changed. We've got um, uh, Ludwig Göransson. Gor- yeah. He's yep. doing the music, who did the music for Black Panther and things like that. And it's being edited by Jennifer Lame, who, which is an interesting thing because it's not, it, it's not uh, Lee Smith, who I think is the best in Hollywood. <clears throat> but Jennifer Lame edited Marriage Story. She edited uh, Hereditary, uh, probably Midsummer as well, although I'd have to check that. Um, so I'm excited to see how these new collaborators, like what they bring to Nolan's like style. I think it's going to yep. be quite a different thing in a way that we won't be able to even express or when we when we first see it because we're so used to what a nolan film feels like i wonder if it will feel different this time with a different team well probably the next time we do a podcast i mean i you know as i said with this with what was what was started off as one half hour podcast about our favorite uh, the order of our christopher nolan movies has expanded into three podcasts which have got increasingly longer and this one has gone past the hour mark so we have we have gone full Lord of the Rings. Jack, I'm going to bring it to an end. Do you want to just do a quick rundown of the top 10 in case, because it was so long ago that anybody did. Should we do it? Should we do a final rundown and then say Go, go ahead. Okay, so number 10, Following. The Dark Knight Rises. Number nine, Insomnia. Interstellar. Number eight, Interstellar. Following. Number seven, Dunkirk. Insomnia. Number six, Dark Knight. Ugh. Batman Begins. Jack, it's just doing the list. You don't have to react it hurts to it. every time. Okay, fine. Uh, number five, Dark Knight Rises. I don't understand you. Memento. <laughs> number four, Memento. The Prestige. Number three, Batman Begins. Dunkirk. Number two, The Prestige. Inception. Number one, Inception. The Dark Knight. 
Well, this was a huge amount of fun. Um, I really enjoyed it. Thank you ever so much. Thanks to everyone for their patience. If you've managed to make it to the end, I don't know what day of the week it is now. Um, is Trump <laughs> still president? Let's hope not. Um, Jack, thanks ever so much. Um, Thank if you, you, Mark. If you enjoyed this, then uh, go to the Patreon page. There's uh, loads of videos and all that sort of stuff. Remember, subscribe, tell your friends, stay safe. Got to go and lie down now. Thanks ever so much. Thanks for listening. Bye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.